Well, okay. Well, I feel like there's some new people uh, in here today, so uh, welcome. And uh, we, last week, I don't know, uh, oh yeah, Joel was here last week. Um, we took a little break last week, and uh, how, how did that go? Yeah, he, uh, he's going um, he's gonna to pop into all the, the Sunday school classes and give that lesson, because uh, it's just something that is helpful and needed, and uh, I think it'll be good for the church. So we're in the middle of Revelation, uh, but we're taking like a little break here because we're in Revelation 20. Um, and the last time we got together, we studied Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6. And we're basically talk, we're in the place now where Christ has returned. He's, uh, the, the millennial kingdom has begun and actually, I guess, uh, pretty much begun and ended in those three verses. Uh, we talked about the, the resurrection of the tribulation saints. Uh, you have everyone uh, uh, ruling and reigning uh, with Christ. Uh, for the thousand years, and um, and the very next thing is the end of the thousand years. Satan's going to be released. But so what I thought would be good, uh, just because the Bible is so full of of details about what will happen and must happen during that thousand years, we're going to take a three week break, uh, and we're going to look at some of the things that the Bible says about that time. Uh, so today we're going to take. This is our first week of it, and uh, today we're going to look at the the covenants of the Bible. And the things that God has sworn through these covenants that must transpire, must take place during the millennial kingdom of Christ, uh, because they haven't yet uh, in the way that he's described them. Uh, But I thought this would be good in a few ways. Uh, First thing, like I said, to give us a glimpse into the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ here on earth and what happens. But also, understanding the six covenants that God has made uh, with with Israel and and with Israel. with the Noahic covenant with mankind in the Bible, help us to it, it, they're they're kind of like benchmarks of of not only his revelation but of him declaring what what he is doing, what he's doing currently, and what he will do in the future. Um, and uh, they're they're kind of like there's there's a few ways I think a few things in the Bible that you can look at and just see a backbone of how the Lord works. You know, you can look at his glory. And, and how he displays his glory and reveals his glory, and the, the times that his glory is revealed and why. And if you just kind of study that through Scripture, it, it gives you a good understanding of what the Lord's doing. Uh, the other is the kingdom, and we've talked about that a little bit. We're, in, we're looking at the millennial kingdom right now, but from the very beginning all the way through, and especially during the teaching of Christ and then here at the end, you see this theme of the kingdom all the way through the Bible. And I told you guys about a really good book, called He Will Reign Forever by Michael Vlock that follows the kingdom from Genesis all the way to Revelation 22, this, the, the, the kingdom of God all the way through. Um, but then the other thing is these, these covenants. Um, we are, uh, I think we've talked about this, when it comes to eschatology, uh, the reason that we're premillennial, the reason we're dispensational is because we look at the Bible from a historical grammatical hermeneutic. It's the hermeneutic that, that the theology comes out of. So we strive as a church to read the Bible the way it's written, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. And then we look at it both uh, uh, grammatically, we look at it historically, of, of, uh, uh, and, and then contextually. But the point is, is what did God mean when he said these words? What did the author mean? What did the audience understand it to mean? And what does it actually mean? Um, rather than taking the New Testament and, and certain parts about the New Testament and reading that back into Scripture, which is what amillennials do and where they end up with their eschatology, or um, starting with a theology, uh, which is what uh, covenantal, covenantalists do, and they, they read 
the Bible through the lens of uh, the covenant of works, covenant of grace, all these other covenants kind of fall into that. And in doing so, uh, it, they, they reinterpret the old uh, based on their understanding of the new and make a lot of these things to be spiritual. So when God speaks these things, uh, it turns out that uh, they, they really had spiritual um, uh, implications or they're going to be um, fulfilled spiritually. But we look at it and say, well, he, he said what he said. And the way that he has all prophecies that we can read in the Bible that have already taken place took place exactly like the Lord said they would. So if you mentioned name places, if you mentioned kings, if you mentioned whatever was going to happen, it happened like that. So he, didn't, he never prophesied, and then it turns out it wasn't an actual place. It was some sort of spiritual manifestation of that. And so we believe in the same way that he has fulfilled prophecy historically, he will fulfill all prophecy. So basically, if it hasn't already happened the way that he said it would, then it just must be future. And so that's so based on our hermeneutic, that's why we end up landing at a place where we believe there will be a future thousand-year kingdom of Jesus Christ. He will reign on this earth. He must, because there's many things that he has not done that God has sworn he would do. Um, and so that's why we land here. Does that make sense? So we're not starting with a theology and then going, okay, so we are premillennialist dispensationalists, you know. Uh, we're, we're starting with just what does the Bible say, and we're trying to maintain the same hermeneutic all the way through. So that being said, these covenants become benchmark things, benchmark not, not only moments, but, but just this helps us to understand, again, what God is currently doing. It makes it very simple to understand what he's currently doing if you just let him, if you read them the way they're written and go, oh, well, that, that's what he's doing. Uh, and they also tell us what he will do, and specifically what he will do during the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. All of these covenants have something to do with the millennial reign of Christ. And so I want to show you that today and uh, read through some of these. And like I said, it's going to be a real quick overview. I want to point you over here again. I know I always put these books up here for you to come and look at and buy them if you want to. But just I want to see good resources that you can go learn more. But there's a, actually, I didn't. it's not a book, but it's a, the Master Seminary Journal did a, a, a a whole journal on the biblical covenants back in 1999. It's, it's really good. It's one of the best that I've read. So you could go look that up. Uh, and then also, uh, Greg Harris's uh, The Bible Expositor's Handbook basically takes that theme of the glory of God from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 and just shows the, the continual revelation of this through you know, Christ returning and reigning on earth. And I already told you about Michael Vlock's book about the, the kingdom. Um, this is a quick overview of uh, Christ's prophetic plans from our hermeneutic. It's compiled by John MacArthur, but it's a bunch of different articles. And then this is a tiny little book that says, you know, it's called Premillennialism, but why there must be a future earthly kingdom of Jesus by Michael Vlock. So those are just uh, some, some good resources for anyone that wants to, to study more outside of, of this. But the best resource to study is the Bible. I mean, just go read it. <laughs> Seriously. If you just read it and, and just let it speak for itself... Uh, like you'll land here uh, if you if you don't start with an exterior theology and 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 read that into the Bible. If you just read Genesis Revelation, uh, and even amillennialists and, and postmillennialists will say, um, if the Old Testament is fulfilled the way that it reads, we have to be premillennialists. But then they just say, but we don't believe it will be. So they uh, so anyway. <laughs> but again, it's like it's not a us versus them. We're all brothers in Christ. Uh, uh, in the sense of if, if we truly uh, believe in Christ and that he is the son of God, that he's died for our sins. So you don't want eschatology to divide the camp for sure. But 
it seems crazy to me uh, to read it any other way. And it's, it's so much, I just feel like, greater to see that God will do everything that he's sworn he would do. And we're going to read some of that today firsthand so you can see this. So, anyway... Last time we started, like I said, Revelation 24 through 6. That's where we're actually at in the, in the narrative of Revelation. And we're at this place, and we're going to read that real quick so we remind ourselves where we're at. And then what um, we're doing is we're, we're kind of diving into this time period that's briefly mentioned in three verses. So there's not a lot about the millennial kingdom of Christ in Revelation. Uh, it, it almost assumes that you've read the rest of the story. You know, and you've gotten here, and it's like everything the Old Testament talked about and all that Christ talked about when he was on earth, that happens during these three verses, and then we just keep moving. But in Revelation 20, 4 through 6, actually start with verse 1. It says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, the, so, and, uh, and with a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, for this purpose, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. So, uh, that's the first thing that happens is the judgment of Satan. He's cast into hell. He's bound and sealed so that he has no influence on earth, no ability to deceive the nations for a thousand years. During that thousand years, Christ reigns on earth as king, which is what the next uh, four or uh, three verses say. It says, Then I saw thrones. And they sat on them. They is referring to those coming with Christ in Revelation nineteen eleven through 16. So they are sitting on thrones together with Christ. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. Uh, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So again, very clearly identifying those who died during the seven-year tribulation, mainly during the last three and a half years. Uh, and, it, and it just, I mean, there's many descriptions there of, of exactly who these people are, and that's, the, uh, that's who they are. It says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So the dead who have died in Christ prior to the tribulation returned together with Christ. The dead who died in the tribulation are now raised from the dead. So all those who have died in Christ are now alive with Christ, in the same way that Christ is alive, to live forevermore in bodies that will never decay. They, they are immortal beings on this earth for a thousand years as Christ reigns on this earth. Now, we've already talked about there are others that, that have made it through the tribulation without dying. At least 144,000 Jews marked by God during that time that have walked bodily into the millennial kingdom without dying. So they do not have immortal bodies that, that have been raised from the dead. Um, and we talked about, you know, the, one of the things we talked about was the, the Lord gathering all of Israel and judging the sheep from the goats, those who truly are his and those who tr- uh, are not his, especially uh, as revealed during the tribulation, how they lived, how they treated others during the tribulation as the basis of that judgment. Um, and so although there are people that, ha- that are in the millennial kingdom that are still able to sin, still able to die, able to have children. And the earth will repopulate during that thousand-year period uh, to the point where at the end of the thousand years, there's another rebellion against God. Um, So all that being said, that's what's going on. But you do have immortal people that belong to God, that have new resurrected bodies, that that reign and rule and judge with Christ during this thousand years. Um, And that would be... uh, Jewish people that uh, believed in God that had faith prior to the church it would be 
back in Noah's time before Israel, anyone that believed, then there would be all the church up to that time and the tribulation of saints. This is all of those who belong to him. Uh, they're now together with him in the millennial kingdom. So that's all that is the first resurrection. We talked about what that resurrection was last time. And then it says, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Uh, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So that's all it says about the thousand-year kingdom is right there. Tribulation saints rise. Uh, there's going to be um, a second resurrection at the end of those who are, have died and are not in Christ. Uh, and those who have risen and those who are with him will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And like I said, the next part of Revelation goes on to when the thousand years were completed. So... What I want to do, like I said, is today, next two weeks, uh, talk about some things that have to happen during these thousand years. Um, and so today we're going to look at the covenants in the Bible um, that must be fulfilled during the kingdom of the earthly reign of Jesus Christ. Um, actually, I have a little of that schedule. I threw it back up here. Next week, I want to talk about the kingdom promises that he's uh, that are in there. That, that a lot of these things come out of the covenants, but I want to look at some specific things that must happen during the, during the reign of Christ on David's throne on earth. Um, Jeff will be in here for uh, a week on November 27th. And then the last week, December 4th, I want to talk about some of the kingdom conditions, what the earth will be like during that time. A lot of prophecies from Isaiah give us a glimpse into what the earth will be like. Some of the things from uh, Ezekiel tell us what will be happening on this earth and what that time period looks like that's very unique and different than now uh, has not happened prior but still must happen before the eternal kingdom because it describes things that couldn't be possible in the eternal kingdom when there is uh, no more possibility of rebellion, sin, death, things like that. So we'll talk about that as well. And then also on December 4th, I was going to say next week, if there's any questions, if you're like, what about this or what about that? I thought we'd use that. And we'll try to do questions every week if we can, but it'd be good on the kingdom conditions week to talk about some of those questions. Like, so... What, what's, what's with the uh, sin sacrifices in the, king, uh, the millennial temple, even though Christ is the, you know, and what about the reign in the millennial temple, even though Christ is the great high priest? There's a bunch of great questions that you're like, that are, that are fascinating about the millennial kingdom that'd be worth at least trying to cover. And then we'll dive back into Revelation. So uh, that's kind of our upcoming schedule. Mark will be in here on the 11th and the 18th to talk to us about caring for our parents as they get older and that we'll have no Sunday school the 25th and the 1st and we'll be back on the 8th. So kind of gives you a, a glimpse into what we're doing. So today, like I said, uh, we're looking at these six biblical covenants in the Bible and, um, and God has made basically six, explicitly made six covenants in the Bible. Um, and all the covenants have promises that are directly related to Israel uh, these covenants also affect people from other nations. Um, you can look at the Noahic covenant, the new, the new covenant. The Noahic covenant is made for Noah and his family, for all people and all um, living things for the earth, not to flood the earth again. The new covenant, we're obviously already participating in that in the sense that the church now receives the spirit of God and forgiveness of sins by what Christ has done on the cross. But there are explicit things said to, except for really the Noahic covenant, uh, with all the rest of the five covenants about Israel itself. And many times when he speaks of these other covenants in the Bible, he mentions the Noahic covenant. It's kind of the foundation. So whether you're familiar with these or not, I don't know. I thought it'd be good to at least look at them for you to understand these. 
I used to teach this at sixth grade here at the school. I'd have the kids memorize the six covenants. And I always tell them, uh, Nam Puddin, N-A-M-P-D-N. If you just remember Nam Puddin, <laughs> then you can, you can remember these covenants. <laughs> Nam Puddin, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Priestly, Davidic, New Covenant. Uh, those are the covenants that God's made uh, with uh, mankind. And uh, the Noahic covenants, Genesis 6 and Genesis 9, Abrahamic covenant, uh, it, these are not the only places he mentions them. In fact, I mean, these covenants are mentioned throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus refers to them in the New Testament, and Paul as well. I mean, they're, they're mentioned all over the place, but these are the places where they're either first uttered, made, or ratified. Does that make sense? So you got the uh, Abrahamic in Genesis 12, 15, 17, the Mosaic Covenant, uh, which is you know the, the Ten Commandments and all that, with the nation of Israel in Exodus 19 and 20, and then re-articulated in Deuteronomy 4 and 5. The Priestly Covenant in Numbers 25, uh, the Davidic covenant uh, in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, and then the New Covenant uh, in Jeremiah, uh, really 33, like 33, and then uh, Ezekiel 36. These are the two places it's mentioned explicitly. Uh, and then what they do, and this is what I always tell the kids to help you to remember it. The Noahic covenant, God will never flood the earth again. Uh, Abrahamic covenant, land, nation, all earth blessed. Again, there's many other things that he says, but those are the three main things to remember. The Mosaic Covenant, if Israel obeys, they will receive the blessing. If they disobey, they receive the curse. Uh, the Priestly Covenant, the perpetual priesthood of Phineas, just PPP. And then uh, the Davidic Covenant, there's going to be a house kingdom throne forever. Uh, and then the New Covenant, forgiveness of sin and God's spirit within. So, again, those were just the ways that I, I taught the kids. Nam pudding, and then remember those things. And it helps you to remember the six covenants that God has made in the Bible. All that being said... Um, uh, Herb Busnitz, and I, I got this from those articles I was telling you about, in the Master Seminary Journal, says this about the covenants. He says, Let no one underestimate the importance and significance of a correct understanding of the divine covenants. Uh, it is much more than an intellectual pursuit. They provide, uh, they provide um, a, a foundational theological anchor for understanding God's working in human history. That's why I want to talk about them, because not only do they help you understand what he has done, but exactly what he must do during the millennial kingdom. Uh, in the Noahic covenant, he says, God shows his gracious mercy towards all mankind, both redeemed and unredeemed, uh, causing it to rain on the just and the unjust, assuring the ongoing, uninterrupted cycle of seasons. Uh, and in it, he demonstrates his unwillingness to allow the sinfulness of man to derail his plan set forth in Genesis 3.15. So what God has said he would do through the Messiah and all that, uh, the Noahic covenant provides a foundation so that this, all things must happen this way. He, he, he necessarily cannot destroy the earth again before Christ does all of these things. The Noahic covenant becomes a foundational covenant that allows all the other covenants to, to happen because the cycles must continue to happen. The earth must remain. He will not destroy the earth again until he's fulfilled all the rest of them. And so that's, it becomes a very important thing. Not only the fact that he probably should have destroyed the earth uh, eight times by, by now, you know, based on our sinfulness. But he has sworn and will not change his mind that he will not destroy, destroy the earth again, even though we continue to sin. In the Abrahamic covenant, God demonstrated his unmerited favor uh, and unilateral choice of Israel as the apple of his eye. A special people called out from among the nations uh, through whom the Messiah would come. Uh, I'm sorry, that's the, the Mosaic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant, God promised uh, Abraham well, that, that he would provide a nation land and that all the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Um, and, uh, and so, um, uh, 
but, but the nation of Israel would come from them. The priestly covenant, God promised the perpetual priesthood of the line of Phineas, uh, and that will carry all the way out through the Lord's earthly millennial temple. That We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Here's the Mosaic covenant. God did reveal his holiness and the heinousness of sin, the daily sacrifices that provide a constant reminder of the need of the shedding of blood for the remission of sin and for the propitiating of God's wrath. In the Davidic covenant, God promised the perpetual reign of the descendant of David, ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah in his millennial reign. In the new covenant, God evidenced um, uh, anew his continual pouring out of grace, a promise through which he would put his law within his people, writing it on their hearts. So understanding these six covenants will shape a person's understanding of Scripture. It will reflect a hermeneutical course that will determine the pitch of one's eschatological sails, which is what we're talking about here. Uh, And careful attention to these six covenants will bear an overwhelming abundance of fruitfulness. Uh, One of which, I would say, is is joy. When you start seeing what the Lord will do during the millennial reign of Christ, these things bring you joy knowing that God will do all that he said he will do. And it's going to be wonderful and glorious. And it just reminds us of his faithfulness, of his goodness, even in the midst of a time that looks like this stuff is impossible. And that's why most people don't believe in a literal interpretation of the covenants, because it looks practically and humanly, and people would say, totally impossible for God to do what he said he's going to do. But I think that makes it even greater, that God will do exactly what he said he's going to do. So like I said, we're not going to look at the Noahic today just because the Noahic covenant, I mean, the, the main thing is that God will never flood the earth again, that the, the, the seasons and cycles of, of life will continue uh, on um, uh, perpetually until the end, and it provides like the foundation for the Lord to do all the rest of these things. So the first covenant we're going to look at then is the, um, well, actually, I did put the Noahic covenant on here. This is what it says in Genesis 9, just so you can read it. God says, I establish my covenant with you uh, and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast on the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast on the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all the earth. And when the bow is in the clouds, the rainbow... I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. It's not, God didn't put the, the rainbow there for us to see it and remember the covenant. I mean, we do, and we're thankful for that. But this is a, a reminder for God that he will, he has sworn by himself that he would never destroy the earth again on account of our sin, uh, which is, a, a, like I said, a, a grace gift given to us, but it becomes the foundation for the Lord to then do all that he said he will do uh, through the remainder of scripture. So, that's the Noahic covenant. Um, and then the Abrahamic covenant, like I said, is Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17 are the main places. In 12 is the first time he utters this to Abraham. He calls out Abraham out uh, and, and talks to him. In, in, in Genesis 15, he actually ratifies the covenant. And so God is the one that ratifies the covenant himself. And then in Genesis 17, uh, he gives the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. So the things to know about the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, This is an unconditional covenant. It's not conditioned on what Abraham does or what anyone does. God swears by himself, the author of Hebrews says it that way, that he will do exactly what he said he will do. Uh, Not based on, I mean, uh, it doesn't matter what mankind does. 
Uh, it's unilateral, which means it's one-sided. It's, it's all dependent upon God and God doing what he said he would do. And it's an everlasting covenant. The things that he promised here, uh, he says, are forever. So they didn't end. They didn't end. The church has not replaced Israel. There has to be a future land. There has to be a future for this nation. And all the earth must be blessed in the way that God said it. Um, and so he swears, swears this covenant. Now, those, like I said, are the three main things to remember about the covenant. Uh, and then he swears it to Abraham. That passes through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah in Genesis. And then you continue the line on. Uh, if you read the genealogy in Matthew, you see this go all the way down through uh, to Jesus Christ. We'll do questions at the end. <laughs> all right. So... In the Abrahamic covenant, it's an unconditional covenant. Basically, God swears by himself. Hebrews six thirteen to 14 says that God made a promise, uh, and he swore by himself. Um, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. Uh, it's a unilateral covenant, which means it's one-sided. God has bound himself to this covenant. Uh, and the covenant is not based on any works. So it's not based on what Israel does, what Abraham does, what you and I do, what the church does. It's based on what God has said he would do. Uh, like I said, there's three main things that he says he will do. He will give them the land. Uh, the land, uh, we, we see when Israel inherits this land, it's the land of Canaan, it's the promised land. But there's actual geographical boundaries for this, this land given in uh, uh, Genesis 15, verse 18, that have never Israel's never possessed that amount of land. We'll talk about that in a second. <clears throat> and then also, he says he'll make Abraham's nation or descendants into a nation. Uh, this becomes the nation of Israel, not any other nation, just the nation of Israel. Um, and he calls that nation his nation. They're always his nation. They, they will be his nation all the way through the millennial kingdom. Um, and he even says what he'll do with this nation, how they'll be in captive in Egypt for 400 years. He'll bring them out. He'll put them in this land. And he even foretells how they will forsake him. They'll be dispersed, and he will gather them back together in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. He's told the whole history of the nation of Israel through the end of the millennial kingdom. So he's laid it out up front uh, that Israel has to have a future, or there's many, many things in the Old Testament that make no sense. Um, And then also uh, he says that he will bless all the earth through Abraham's descendant. Um, and, uh, you know, Israel, uh, he makes Israel into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, uh, a, a function that they did partially but have never fulfilled the way that God called them to do. They must do it during the millennial kingdom. Um, and also, all the earth will be blessed through the one to come from Israel, the promised one, which is Jesus Christ. And that's why we continue to follow the line of the promised seed all the way through Judah and all the way down through um, uh, to, to, to Joseph and Mary, um, and, uh, and it becomes, is Jesus Christ. So Jesus will literally bless all the earth. Uh, we know already that he will bring salvation uh, from sin, which we're experiencing right now, but partially. Uh, there, there will come a time where he will, uh, he will cast Satan into hell. He will reign on earth. There will be a... Uh, a, a um, uh, less sin, if you want to say it that way, but virtually no sin on earth for a long time. He'll rule with a rod of iron, bringing justice quickly when there is sin. And then Satan will be released, and he will judge Satan forever, and there will be no sin. So when we talk about deliverance from sin, we're talking about more than just what we're experiencing now. This is the first fruits of that, but there is more to come. There is an end of sin that must come. There's a, a total sanctification and glorification that must come that's part of this new covenant promise. So we have begun that. He ratified that covenant on the cross. We'll talk more about that. 
But our experience of the new covenant right now as the church in this life is not the complete fulfillment of the new covenant. And we'll see that when we read it. So, but it's the Abrahamic covenant that promises that all the earth will be blessed through the offspring or the seed of Abraham. And like I said, Revelation is giving us a play-by-play of what that looks like. The Abrahamic covenant, like I said, passes through Abraham's children, uh, through a specific line, not to all of his children, um, because Abraham is the father of many nations. There's many nation groups that have come out of Abraham, but only one was God's chosen nation, and that's the nation of Israel. So the promises pass through Isaac, through Jacob, and in Genesis 49, we see that the one that will rule forever, the one that the scepter will not depart, it comes uh, through Judah. Um, and that's the tribe that Jesus Christ comes from. Abraham and covenant is mentioned many times in the Torah. Like I said, you got these main three references, and then it's, it's reiterated in uh, Genesis 18, 21, 22, 26, and in 50. Uh, you see in Exodus 13, Exodus 33, Numbers 11, Numbers 14, Numbers 32, Deuteronomy 1, 4, and 7. And that's not comprehensive. These are just times that the Lord restated what he said to Abraham to remind Israel that he is doing exactly what he said he would do. Um, it's also restated in the New, uh, New Testament, showing that even during Christ's reign and after his ascension and resurrection, so after the church has begun, the, the New Testament writers continually refer to what God promised to Abraham, showing that this has not, this is, he has not nullified this or changed this. He's still doing exactly what he said he would do for Abraham. And we see that in Luke, in Acts, Romans, Galatians, and in Hebrews. So, all that being said, I thought the best thing is, like, well, let's just see exactly what he said, because this helps you to understand some of the things that must take place. So in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and in verse 7, the first time the Lord speaks to Abraham and calls him out, here's what he tells Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land, so it's a specific piece of land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham, or Abram, and he said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So here you got the land, you got the nation, all the earth blessed through Abraham. And again, these aren't just spiritual promises. These are things that God will do. And as the revelation of Scripture continues to happen, you begin to see this. Uh, many of these things have near fulfillment, but were not fulfilled completely, as the Lord said, which means they must have a future fulfillment. We see that many times in prophecies. You see that in prophecies about Jesus Christ, where you, you'll, you'll have one prophecy, Zechariah 9, where it talks about his first coming and his second coming back to back. The only reason we know that there's, two, there's a separation of at least 2,000 years between those two verses is because this has happened and that is not. You know what I mean? The other way to interpret that is to say, that has happened and this part was spiritual. And we're just saying, that's not the way we interpret prophecy. Same thing here. He has to do these things. Now, that being said, Genesis 15, uh, 25 years have passed. No, 11 years have passed at this point. Uh, Abraham still doesn't have a child for these prophecies to actually uh, take place, which shows you that Abraham did not believe these were just spiritual prophecies in some spiritual heavenly land or something like that. that he needed an actual son for these things to take place. So God brings him out, reiterates what he's already said, and even says more. And then on that day, ratifies, begins uh, the, the, the Abrahamic covenant. He basically, this is, this is when it, it began, if you want to say it that way. He brought him outside. God brought Abraham outside. He said, look towards the heaven, number the stars. If you're able to number them. 
Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This comes in the context of Abraham just saying, I'm 86 years old. I got no kid. And God's like, just be patient. Uh, so <laughs> he says, your offspring will outnumber the stars and the sand. He says, and, belie- and he believed the Lord and, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's a huge verse uh, that, that Paul talks about later. But this is Abraham's faith in what God said, though he couldn't see anything that God had done. Uh, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Again, a physical piece of property. But he said, O oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three-year-old, a female goat, three years old, a, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then it says he brought all these. He cut them in half. This is the terminology we get about cutting a covenant. Covenants were ratified usually through some sort of sacrifice. The same thing with the new covenant. It was sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He laid each half over the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. The birds prey came down. He drove them away. The sun was going down. A deep sleep fell upon Abraham. So when this covenant was ratified, Abraham was asleep, which again shows you it's unconditional, unilateral. Abraham had nothing to do with it. It wasn't like God was like, Abraham, you do your part. I'll do my part. This is all God. And it says, and behold, uh, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Very significant. You should go back and look at the Bible. When God ratifies covenants, Mosaic covenant, new covenant, Abrahamic covenant, God shows up in fire and darkness. The darkness of God uh, is there when the presence of God comes, which I think explains the three hours of darkness of the cross when God's ratifying the new covenant. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land. So here he's given, I mean, play by play for the next 400 years what's going to happen. Uh, In a land that will not be theirs, uh, they'll be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve. That's going to be the nation of Egypt. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. So God uh, prophesies what's going to happen, how he's going to build this nation that's going to come from Abraham, the nation of Israel. As for you, you'll go to your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried at good old age. So he's not going to live to see this. The, this, this, what, he, what God's promising he's going to do for Abraham. He says, they, this future generation, this future nation I'm going to build from you, shall come back here to this piece of land that you're on right now. We're ratifying this covenant. In the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So again, that's why God destroys the Canaanites. There's a judgment on the Canaanites, and he uses Israel. When the sun has gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these two pieces. That's the presence of God. And it says, and on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. And look at this. This is, this is what's significant about this part. From the river of Egypt, the Nile River, to the great river, the river Euphrates. So there's two actual rivers. Again, if he destroys the earth again, those rivers are gone. So again, the Noahic covenant is keeping all things in place so that he will fulfill exactly what he said. Uh, the land of the, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, which are giants, which is cool, uh, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. Basically, these are actual tribes, actual name places of actual pieces of property and land that the people of Israel must inherit. And I'm telling you, to this day, they have never inherited that piece of land. People have drawn it out and said, this is... This is uh, the, the, the difference between here is depending on where you stop with the Nile and where you go over from. So, you know, this person goes down to here and takes it across and he cuts it across and cuts out this part of the land. Either way, Israel is about this big. They've never been this big. Even under Solomon's reign, Solomon did not reign over that amount of land. There's never been a time in the history of Israel where they've ever inherited the land that God swore to Abraham. So God exaggerated, couldn't pull it off. 
fudged a little bit on the landmarkers, or it's got to happen. He's got to do what he said he's going to do. And the only time that this can happen is, is during the millennial kingdom, the reign of Christ. And again, you could say, well, it could happen before then, but you're going to find out through other covenants that it has to happen during that time. So they must inherit this land. Um, and like I said, these are just guesses about, uh, based on the, the tribes mentioned and the two rivers mentioned, what that land's going to look like. But no matter what, everyone knows it's greater than any amount of land that Israel has ever possessed, whether it's during the time of David or Solomon when they're at their peak uh, up until this point. So there is an actual land piece that they must possess because God swore to Abraham. Genesis 17, uh, this is where he gives them the sign of the, uh, of the covenant, which is circumcision. Uh, just because of time, let me, let me hit the main thing here. Again, he's talking about the nations, the land. He's going to give it to Abraham. But here, he, the first time he says, this is an everlasting covenant. There's nothing that stops this covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. It lasts forever. It's a continual, ongoing, forever covenant that God makes with Israel. Therefore, necessarily, the church does not replace Israel because the church is not Israel and Israel's not the church. God's got to do this for the people of Israel. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Many times he talks about these promises being to Abraham forever or this being an everlasting covenant that he made with Abraham or an everlasting possession or my land forever. You know, so you're going to see this. This is an ongoing thing for history uh, until the Lord does something to completely alter all things, which I think is the, the new heavens and the new earth mark the end of forever, if you want to say it that way, when he's actually fulfilled all these things. Um, uh, in Genesis 22, uh, in Genesis 22, he reaffirms the same covenant with Isaac, uh, and he basically says a lot of the same things. Here he actually ta- says the offspring, uh, your offspring, singular, shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So I think you're, we're getting a little more specific and aiming towards one offspring in particular that we're talking about, which is going to be revealed to be Jesus Christ. But, uh, again, this is still promises for the nation of Israel. Genesis 26, when he uh, reiterates the exact same covenant. Um, well, here, we're still talking to Isaac here. Uh, he talks about the nation and the lands. Again, all these lands that Isaac is seeing. Uh, and that all the earth will be blessed through his offspring. And then Genesis 28, he reiterates the same thing to Jacob. As Jacob is, is uh, fleeing to go up to, to Laban and to um, uh, meet Rachel and all that. Uh, he tells him, uh, I am the Lord... Uh, the God of Abraham, uh, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. So again, this is right before he's leaving the land. He says, I will give you. This is the whole of Jacob's ladder. You know, he sees the angels going to and fro, but he's laying here on this land. And he says, I'm going to give you this land. He says, your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north and south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again, uh, you can say it this way. Historically, all of the earth has never been blessed by Israel, except for Christ coming from, from Israel, from the, that nation, and, and, this, and dying for us. But, but again, that only right now applies to those who believe in Jesus Christ, and we're still suffering and dying for him. There's never been a time in history where Israel has been a blessing to all of the earth in the way that God has stated it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there will be. There must be. 
And all the earth will be blessed. Not just people that believe in Jesus Christ and are born again here and now, but he will redeem the actual earth. He will, he will, he will redeem the planet, redeem the earth, and it will be blessed by Christ. And all the people of the earth that exist during that time will literally be blessed because of the presence of Christ and his rule and reign on earth, whether or not they believe in him. And creation itself will be blessed. So again, these are all future fulfillments that have to take place. Some of these things have begun. Some of these things happen now through what Christ has done, but none of them have occurred the way that God has said they must occur. Uh, In Genesis 35, again, he reiterates it in Genesis uh, when he renames Jacob Israel after Jacob wrestles with God, and he tells him, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give uh, this land to your offspring after you. There's a few more. Uh, when Israel goes down to Egypt, and then when Joseph dies, Joseph talks about it. And then in Genesis 49, again, like I said, he, uh, uh, Joseph is prophesying about Judah, um, and, uh, or Jacob is prophesying about Judah, and he uh, declares uh, to Judah that the, the scepter will not depart from Judah, the ruler's staff will not depart from him, uh, to him will be the obedience of the people. Um, and then that's, we've already talked about the prophecy of his uh, garments being washed in wine, the vesture uh, of, um, in the blood of grapes, and his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Again, these are things that Christ uh, will fulfill in the future. So all that being said, those are the things that God swears to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, and all of those things have not occurred the way that God said they would occur, which we're saying those things must occur in the millennial kingdom. Uh, secondly, the Mosaic covenant. Real quick, this is a conditional covenant. God does do what he said for the nation of Israel. He brings them out. He brings them to this land. They're at Mount Sinai, and they stay there for a year. And God, at Mount Sinai, uh, makes a covenant with Israel alone. Not the church, uh, with Israel. Uh, He basically tells them if they obey, they'll, they'll receive the blessing. Not blessings, but the blessing. And if they disobey, they will receive the curse. And then he lays out exactly what the blessing and the curse are. Uh, in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And then in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, which I wish we had time to read the whole thing, but he tells them ahead of time, before they even go into the land, exactly what will happen to them, that they will receive both the blessing and the curse, that they will will receive the the fullness of the curse and be cast out of the land, dispersed to many nations. But he tells them they will repent. There will come a day in the future where their, their, their um, offspring will repent and believe in him. Actually, I'm going to read some of this because it's great. And uh, he says in Deuteronomy 30, so after all these things have happened, they've, they've received the curse, um, and he tells them that these th- that's where we get that, that whole verse, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. So basically God's saying, what's going to happen is going to be beyond your comprehension, but I'm going to do it exactly like I said I would do it. And then in Deuteronomy 30, he says, So it shall be when all these things have come upon you. So This is future Israel. Uh, uh, it says, the, the blessing and the curse which I set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord has banished you. So again, a future, a future people of Israel that call to mind all the things that God said that they would do in his word. He says, And you return to the Lord your God, and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and will have compassion on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. 
If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will gather you. And from there he will bring you back. He will bring you back into the land. So again, Abrahamic promise, uh, which your fathers possessed and you possess. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Again, has not occurred, um, but they are scattered currently. And then in verse 6 is the first glimpse of the new covenant way before the new covenant came about. He says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And then he goes and tells them what's going to happen through that new covenant promise. So all that being said... Uh, God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel, a covenant based, this is a conditional covenant based on their obedience or disobedience. But what's significant about this is attached to these promises for the nation of Israel is with their future obedience will come about the fulfillment of both the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. And what we're going to see also the priestly covenant and the Davidic covenant. So God's not done with Israel. He can't be done with Israel because he said what they would do in the future. Does that make sense? Specifically to the nation of Israel. This is not the church. This is not the nation of Egypt or anything else. This is the nation of Israel. So then we get to the priestly covenant. In Numbers 25, this is a tiny little piece of scripture, but there's significance for the millennial reign of Jesus Christ in it. In Numbers 25, Israel is about to go into land there on the plains of Moab. They, uh, Balak brings out Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And Israel ends up uh, uh, basically playing a harlot, going after the idols of the Moabites and stuff like that. And God starts to, to wipe out the people of Israel. Phineas, uh, seeing all of this, basically, uh, well, I, I, let me just read it. Um, Phineas, it says... I got verse 10 up there. So starting in verse 7, it says, When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose, left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the chamber, and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through the belly. This, this, one of the priests of Israel had taken this woman into his tent to, 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 um, to do immoral things, and uh, Phineas goes and kills them. And it says, Thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So God sent a plague on the people of Israel for their idolatry and immorality during this time. It says, The Lord said to Moses, listen to this, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. So while the priests were going astray and the Levites were doing the wrong thing and the people of God were going against God and worshiping idols and committing acts of immorality with the people of Moab, Phineas went against the grain and, and, and did what was right in the sight of God because of his uh, jealousy for the holiness of God. And God makes a, a, a covenant with him. It says, Therefore say, Behold, I am giving him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him, to Phineas, and to his descendants after him, uh, the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel." Now, this priestly covenant, God promises basically a perpetual priesthood for the line of Phineas. Uh, this covenant was given, like I said, after Phineas did uh, uh, what was right in the sight of the Lord. It's an unconditional covenant given to him uh, and to his descendants. And if you continue to read, this covenant is passed, uh, you know, it's the Levitical priesthood passed from uh, Levi to Aaron to Phineas through one of his ancestors named uh, Zadok. 
Um, and uh, the reason that the Zadok was blessed is basically during the time of David, Zadok was one of the only priests doing the right thing. He did exactly what Phineas did, stood for the Lord in a time where the priests were going astray. And, and God takes his line, and it becomes the Zadokian Levites during the millennial reign of Christ that we see in Ezekiel 44 that are actually reigning in the temple of Jesus Christ. And I think I put that up here. Um, so it's an unconditional, unilateral, everlasting covenant made by God uh, because of what Phineas did, but not based on what Phineas' descendants will do. It's an everlasting covenant. It has to take place. It's never, it's never taken place. In fact, there is no temple now. And so there is no temple. There is no line of Levi. There is no line of Phineas to do this. And so, um, but what we see in Ezekiel 44 is there is Zadokian priests in the millennial temple of Jesus Christ that has not been built, that must happen in the future at some point. In Ezekiel 40 through 44, you see this whole temple, the outline of this temple, what it's going to be. And it says, the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept my charge in my sanctuary, when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me and minister to me. They shall stand before me to offer the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. And it shall be for the priests who are sanctified, the sons of Zadok, who kept my charge and did not go astray when the sons of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. Again, I, don't, I didn't put it up there. In First Chronicles 6, you can see the, the high priestly genealogical line. And it's, this is the line from Levi to Aaron to Phinehas to Zadok. So in other words, there will be Levitical priests in the millennial temple, although Christ is the great high priest, and they will be offering the sacrifices that will happen during the millennial reign of Christ, sin offerings, uh, um, guilt offerings, and grain offerings during this time. Again, all laid out in Ezekiel. So there are going to be sacrifices, and there are going to be priests that are doing these sacrifices as Christ reigns as the high priest. And again, what's really significant about this is Jeremiah 33, which is where we get the new covenant, uh, reiterates the fact that this priestly covenant to Phineas can't be broken and will last forever. Uh, we'll read this at the very end because it's like a, a section that pulls them all together. But he says, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and the covenant with the night. So this is going back to the Noahic covenant. So if you can break that one. Uh, he says, so the day and the night will not come to their appointed time. Then my covenant with David, my servant, will be broken. Which he's basically saying, what I swore to David must happen. Even though right now he's about to destroy Israel and there will be no king on David's throne from that point forward up until this present day. And he says, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. Now, again, we'll talk about this in a second, but what's significant about Jeremiah 33 is God's about to wipe out the throne, wipe out the kingdom, wipe out the temple. There hasn't been a, a Levitical priest in this line to, to reign in the temple in this way since. There hasn't been a, a son of David to sit on the throne in this way since. And, and, and right before he wipes him out, he basically says, I'm still going to do everything that I swore I would do to David, to Phineas." And all that's based on the promises I made to Noah. This must take place. And he's saying it as he's proclaiming the new covenant. Again, which we'll get to in a second. So you got the, the, the Abrahamic covenant. You got the priestly covenant. And then the Davidic covenant. This is one of the greatest. Because there is so many things in this covenant that explicitly must take place and have not taken place and can only take place if Jesus Christ reigns on an earthly throne in Jerusalem, on David's throne, is David's son. In fact, the majority of all the Davidic covenant has not taken place because Christ never reigned as king. Do you understand that? 
Jesus Christ did not reign as king on earth for a single moment of his life. So you either make it heavenly, and he's like, he's on his throne now, and all this Davidic covenant stuff must be happening in heaven where we can't see it, or he will do exactly what he said he would do through the son of David, Jesus Christ. So again, we'll look at it in a second, but the Davidic covenant is the next time God swears a covenant, and he swears it to David and to David's descendants. And again, it's unconditional. It has nothing to do with David's obedience. It's unilateral. It's made by God, and God himself swears to do these things. In fact, all of it is I will language. It's not, David, you do your part, I'll do my part. He's saying, I'll do this, this, and this. It's an everlasting covenant. He says over and over, this will be forever, forever, and forever. And again, right now, all the things we're about to read are not happening. So either forever was just a little bit of time, or forever is forever, and, and, and it, it's going to happen. And God swears, these are the three main things, a house and a kingdom and a throne for David and his descendants forever. And we see this is David, and it's going to go through David's son. Uh, again, Solomon's the one that builds the temple. There's a near fulfillment of many of these things, but it never happened the way that God said it would happen. So it has to happen through David's son, uh, Jesus Christ. So the Davidic covenant, we first read about it in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, in 2 Samuel 7, and like I said, this, this covenant is like all the other ones, uh, God has to do what he says he's going to do. It's an everlasting covenant. He never exaggerates, and he always says what he says, or he always does what he says. In Second uh, Samuel 7, here's what God says to David. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and, and be disturbed no more. Now, what's funny about that is they're in the place. So, I mean, they're, they're in Israel. They have inherited the land. David is reigning as king over Israel. This is one of the, the, the strongest times of the nation of Israel. And God's saying, at some point, I will do this. So, you know, you could look at it and be like, well, if he hasn't done it then, when's he going to do it? Uh, so he says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they will dwell in their own place. It can't be currently because it's future prophecy. He says, Violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Again, none of those things have taken place. Moreover, what you could say, well, it happened during Solomon's reign for like 15, 20 years. You know? So again, if that's all God was talking about, then the terminology is crazy. If he was just talking about a 15, 20-year reprieve when there's really no one fighting the people of Israel, well, then that's not forever language. And that's, you know, so anyway... Uh, he says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, again, this is significant because God is saying what he's going to do. Not Solomon's going to make you a house, but the Lord is going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so David dies, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, again, this is something that has not taken place. I'll be a father to him. He shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. That, we'll talk about that later. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with these words, in accordance with the vision that Nathan spoke to David. Same covenant reiterated in 1 Chronicles 17. God says, and a lot, same terminology, but this is, there's some good stuff in here. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them. Again, future stuff. So obviously has to do with a nation that is not the nation currently sitting in the place and in the land when David is reigning on his throne. 
and buy men shall not waste them anymore. From that point, da, 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 same things. It says, the Lord will build a house for you, and when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, uh, one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build. So look at this. This is significant. Here, I will raise this one up. This, the one that's going to build the house is God, but here it's he, this future one. He says, he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Uh, I will be to him a father. He shall be a son to me, or um, I, uh, he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So here, God calls it his house, God calls it his kingdom, and God calls it his throne, speaking of this, this future one that will build the house, uh, and it will be established forever. Again, this can't be talking about Solomon, because Solomon didn't do this. Secondly, it's equating the one that will build the house both with God and with the offspring that, will, that comes from David. And the only person that that could, could possibly be is Jesus Christ, who is both God, who will build the house and who will build the kingdom and the throne forever, and the son of David, who will sit on the throne, and his throne and his kingdom will be established forever. It doesn't make sense if we're talking about Solomon. It only makes sense if we're talking about something that has not taken place. Uh, and then, like I said, all the other things that God promises to the one that sits on the throne, which are attached to the Davidic covenant, uh, must take place and haven't taken place. In fact, Psalm 89 is a really good place to go see some of the things that God has promised to this king that will come in David's line. And again, you've got all these forever promises. But look at what Psalm 89 says of, of this one, this, this son of David. It says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever in heavens. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. This is, so God is basically, at some point the Davidic covenant has been ratified because now he's saying, I have made this covenant. He says, I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne for all generations. He goes on in verse 20 to say, I have found David my servant with my, uh, with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will, be str- will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. I think we saw that at Armageddon. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name, his horn, his strength will be exalted. I shall also set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Again, this is something that this, this is Christ. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. That's forever. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. So no matter what Israel does, no matter what the descendants of David do, no matter what mankind does, God's going to do this to this one that he's speaking of. He says, my covenant I will not violate. Again, this is unilateral. God will not violate his own covenant that he's sworn to do, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Again, what God says he does does not alter, and he will do it. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever. His throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, as the witness in the sky is faithful. Salah. So 
That is what God says he's going to do. What he utters, he does. He doesn't alter what he utters. He does everything exactly like he says he's going to do it. And he has sworn to the descendant of David that your throne, your kingdom, your house will be established forever. That it will be his throne, his kingdom, and his house. And he is the one that will establish the throne, kingdom, and the house forever. And the son of David will sit on the throne as the king and rule over the earth forever. That hadn't happened yet. But it has to happen. The Davidic covenant is one of the greatest ones outside of this one. The new covenant. They're all great, but this one is the most significant because the new covenant is something that, again, that God swore to the people of Israel as he is destroying the people of Israel. And he tells them he's going to do something. And it's not just spiritual. It is spiritual, but what is connected to this spiritual uh, promises that he does for the nation of Israel, it, 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 with that promise comes all the other ones. They all come together, and we're going to see that here in a second. In Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, you have the two, uh, the most explicit articulations of the covenant, but he says it many times in Ezekiel. Um, But again, this is an unconditional covenant that he makes to the people of Israel and Judah. It's a unilateral covenant, something only God's going to do, and he says, I will, I will, I will, not based on what they will do. It's an everlasting covenant. it's, It's continual, ongoing, forever. And God swears two main things. First, that he will forgive their sins. So that's one of the first things that comes out of this. He will forgive their sins. He'll cleanse their uncleanness, their iniquity. He will remember no more. And then he says he'll give them his spirit. He's going to give them a new heart. He's going to write his word on their heart. He's going to give them a new spirit, and it will be his own spirit. So God is going to do this for the people of Israel and the people of Judah. Not talking about the church. We're not talking about the church here. Does the church experience this? Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. But this is talking about Israel and Judah. And, it's a, and what's attached to this new covenant fulfillment is also the fulfillment of the Abrahamic, priestly, and Davidic covenant. They all come together, uh, and they're all attached to the fulfillment of this covenant. So when God fulfills this covenant, he will also fulfill what he told Abraham and what he told David. So... In the midst of one of the most condemning judgments ever pronounced on God's people, during a time when Israel's enemy Babylon is about to destroy and wipe out Jerusalem, tear down the walls of the palace, tear down the temple, exile God's people, uh, as all of God's promised covenants look like they will be impossible to fulfill, and God has not kept his word, both to David and to Phinehas and to Abraham, because they're losing the land, they're losing the nation, they're losing the temple, and they're losing the throne, He says this covenant, which, like I said, ties them all together and is even greater than the ones he's already said. He makes a new covenant with Israel and Judah. He swears unconditionally to forgive their sins completely, to fill them with his spirit and his word, and to bring them right back here to this land and do everything he said he's going to do. So in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 37, it says this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. So future, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them out of the hand, uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So not like the Mosaic covenant. Very different than that covenant. He says, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, and each his brother saying, know the Lord. They shall all know me. That has never happened. Uh, He says, From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. 
He goes on to say, thus says the Lord who, who gives the sun for light by day and fix order the moon and the stars and the light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. That's Noahic covenant language right there. So the God that made the covenant with Noah and has kept everything in order, he's like, based on the order of all things, this must take place. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. So if you can break the covenant God made with all of creation, the Noahic covenant, yeah, then, then maybe he'll go back on his word uh, here uh, with what, what he told uh, Abraham uh, about them being a nation. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured, which they can't, and the foundations of the earth can be explored, which they can't, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done. In other words, God will not forsake Israel. He cannot because he is faithful and he cannot lie. And it doesn't matter what they do. Israel, God's promises to Abraham and God's promises to David, God's promises to Phineas and God's promises to the new covenant are not based on what Israel will or will not do. They're based on the faithful word of God, what he has sworn to do. And, and, and they're founded on the Noahic covenant out the gate at the very beginning. Ezekiel 36 says it this way. He says, I will take you from the nations. Again, so this is, this is future terminology. I will gather you from all the countries. I will bring you into your own land. Abrahamic covenant language. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. No more sin, no more idolatry. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone, which they have currently to this day. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, the spirit of God within you and cause you He will cause them to walk in his statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. And you shall be my people, Israel and Judah. And I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Again, this is new covenant stuff. This has not happened. There has not been a national repentance of Israel. Israel is not in the land in this way. They've not been gathered from all the nations. They don't have a new spirit and a new heart. All of them do not know him so that they don't even have to teach one another. None of this has happened yet. Yes, there has been a ratification of the covenant, and we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, actually, it keeps going. He says, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from the countries. I think I just read this one. (laughs) Hold on a second. Jeremiah 33. This is what I want to say. So this sums it up. And look at this. This is one of the last things he says before he destroys uh, Jerusalem. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. And look at this. When I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. Again, go study the branch throughout the Bible. This is Christ. This is Jesus Christ. He will come forth. And it says, And he, this branch of David, shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Has Jesus ever done that? No. No. I mean, he, yeah, he died for our sins. He's given it. He is always righteous and just, but he has never reigned on earth as the son of David and executed righteousness and justice on earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. That has not happened. And this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. He gives them a new name, the, the nation of Israel. For thus says the Lord God, or the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. This is moments before he wipes out the 
throne of David from Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings. This is right before he wipes out the temple that has never been built in the way and done the things that they did back then. Even, even when the, the new temple was built under Herod and all that, the Holy of Holies didn't have the presence of God like it did back in the day. After it left in Ezekiel, it never talks about the glory of God returning to the temple in the Holy of Holies. Uh, he goes on to say, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night. Here we go again with the Noahic covenant. So basically, if you can, can stop all order and break that covenant, he says that my covenant may also be broken with David so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured. So I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. He's got to do it. He says he'll do it. And nothing can stop him from doing it. Yeah, it looks impossible right now. And for 2,000 years, people have said this is impossible. And we have eschatologies built to, to try to make this possible in some other weird heavenly way. Just don't do that. Let him do what he says he's going to do. He has to complete this, and he has to do it. Um, and, and he has to do it this way. So, all this being said, how does the church fit into this? All right? That's the question. Everything we've talked about has to do with Israel and Judah. It has nothing to do with you and me as Gentiles. It has nothing to do with the church. And, and wasn't the new covenant fulfilled when Christ died on the cross? Well, Jesus himself says in Luke 22 that he's about to ratify the covenant in his blood. He's the cut sacrifice for the covenant. He says he took bread and wine, gave thanks, broke it. This is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise the, cup, likewise, the cup after they had eaten it. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, this is Christ basically saying tomorrow the new covenant will be ratified, just like the covenant was ratified with Abraham in Genesis 15. But it was not fulfilled. It was not completed. Uh, Judah and Israel have not been gathered. They have not been given the spirit. All these things haven't happened. It was ratified, started, begun on this day. Christ fulfilled what he said he would do here. In 1 Corinthians 11, again, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So Christ is pointing to his own sacrifice and saying very clearly that the new covenant will be ratified tomorrow. And we always talk about the church participating in the new covenant and participating in all of these things that are promised to, to Israel and Judah. So how does that take place? Well, there's a lot to say there, but really quickly, I think Paul addresses that in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, Paul is talking to Gentile believers, and look what he says. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So basically, those who are, we're, we're those who are outside of Israel. We're not part of the Abrahamic covenant. We have nothing to do with the priestly covenant and the Davidic covenant. That's not for us. And we have nothing to do with the new covenant. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. At one time, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We had nothing to do with these covenants. He says, and we were strangers to the covenants of promise, the covenants we've been talking about. There was a time when all of us that were not Jews were outside of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, us, who were once far off, have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. Christ ratifying the new covenant on the cross. This is church terminology. He says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both into one. He's brought Gentiles and Jews together in what we now call the church and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed 
in the ordinances. And he goes on to explain this. What Paul is describing here to these Ephesians is, is, is the, the beginning of the church and what God is doing through the church. Right now, in Christ, and in Christ alone, we as uh, Gentiles are being grafted in to Israel. We are being grafted into these promises. We are not Israel. We're Gentiles. But we're being grafted into all these covenant promises that belong to the nation of Israel alone. Does that make sense? And that is happening in Christ. This is a mystery. He describes it as a mystery not revealed or understood until Christ began to do this. If you go read the gospel, or if you go read the, the book of Acts, you see even the apostles themselves wrestling with how this is happening. Over and over, Peter sees Cornelius filled with the Spirit. He's like, oh my goodness, Gentiles are receiving what God swore to Judah and Israel. And then it continues to happen over and over and over, which all of a sudden they realize this is the church. This is what we call the church, where Jews and Gentiles are now receiving the Spirit of God. They're being brought together into one body, which we call the church, the body of Christ, who he is the head. But that time will end at some point. Right now it's called the time of the Gentiles. There's a time of the Gentiles that will be over. And, and, and the future of Israel will begin. And that's what Revelation is all about. That's what we're studying in Revelation. Revelation is the pressing of Jacob. This Jacob's dis- distress. And it's a time of pressing on the people of Israel to the point where they recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. They repent. And he gathers them in and does these things. And all of this has not taken place, but must take place, and it's fulfilled in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. In the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, we see David reigning on his throne, the Levitical priests in the temple offering the sacrifices like he said. We see Israel in the land as a nation forever, and we see all of the earth blessed by him. And in that time, all of Israel will know him, and they will not have to share the gospel like we do now because he will be there, and they will all know him, and they will be known by him. There will be a time where everything that he says will happen exactly like he says. And it can only happen when he's on his throne, reigning in Jerusalem as David's son forever. The throne and the kingdom and the house forever. So it's just a matter of patience. It's not a matter of reinterpreting it in a spiritual or heavenly way. It's just a matter of waiting for that time to come. And again, that's what Revelation is all about. So... All that being said, I think this is, um, this is the best New Testament explanation of what is going on now. Go read Romans 9 through 11. Romans 11 explains very clearly the current time and that the promises are still going to be fulfilled. And this is after the resurrection of Christ. This is after the beginning of the church. The church has not replaced Israel, and God's covenant promises have not changed at all. It's just timing. So look at this, and we'll end on this. The best biblical explanation of what is happening. I asked then, God, or Paul says, has God rejected his people? By no means. There's no way God's rejected his people. He says, for I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people who he foreknew. So he's being very Jewish here. This is, he's, he's, he's making a distinction between the, the people of Israel and the church. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to Elijah? He says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, he's saying God always keeps a remnant. So too, at the present time, both 2,000 years ago when Paul's writing this and to this current day, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But 
If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So what's going on now? Right now, Israel has been hardened. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So, so there are elect, chosen, predestined Jewish people that are part of the church currently. But right now, national Israel is still hardened, and they do not believe in the Messiah. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day, both 2,000 years ago and in 2022. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them and let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So right now, God has hardened Israel. Um, and right now, the Gentiles are being grafted in. That's us. He says, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, is God done with Israel? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so to make Israel jealous. One of the functions of the church is to bring jealousy to Israel to the point that they see us partaking of the new covenant apart from them and at some point repent. Does that make sense? And I think uh, this happens during the millennial kingdom. Or, I'm sorry, during the tribulation. Now, if their trespasses mean riches for the world, and if their failure to recognize their Messiah, believe in him, follow him, obey him, means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, when they repent, I mean, if, if we're already receiving these graces through Christ, by their rejection, when they do repent, well, then what's it going to be? He says, now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. Paul's praying for their jealousy. Paul's praying for their repentance and, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, which is what we're experiencing now, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Literally, that's what it means. That's it. Ezekiel 37. When they repent, the dead will rise and Christ will return. I mean, we're talking about what we just read in Revelation 24 through 6. So when Israel repents, this is, all this stuff happens. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, listen to this. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among them. So this is what it's talking about. So, so Israel's been hardened. We're being grafted in. We're being brought into these promises. Uh, he says, look at this, um, do not be arrogant towards the branches. Don't you look down on Israel, don't you think we've replaced Israel, and don't you ever go down that path. He says, if you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Christ is the one that grafted us, and we're in this because of Christ. In Christ, through Christ, through the blood of Christ. He says, then you will say, branches were broken off, so I could be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Don't look at yourself and think we're better than Israel. Don't look at yourself and puff yourself up to think that God is done with them and now this belongs to us. He says, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, steadfast to the end, persevering to the end. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So again, it's by faith that we're in this, right? Those who fall away from faith are cut off just like those who are hardened in Israel. Even, uh, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, speaking of Israel, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Again, if we're 
grafted in as a wild olive branch, don't you think he can regraft the actual branches? He says, for if you were cut off from what by nature was a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, Israel, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Lest you be unwise in your own sight. I do, wait, did I skip something? Uh, no, that's right. Uh, lest you be unwise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. This is the answer. That a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's what the church is doing right now. Christ, through his church, is bringing in all of those who belong to him from all nations. He says, uh, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer, Jesus Christ, will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. New covenant terminology. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This must happen for the nation of Israel. As regards to the gospel, they're enemies for your sake currently. As regards to election, they are beloved for the sakes of their fathers. That's, that's Abraham, Davidic covenant, priests. I mean, we're talking about the things that God swore to their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So in other words, God will not, he cannot revoke what he has said he will do, and he must do exactly what he said he will do. But right now is the time of the Gentiles, the time of the church, the time that we are being grafted into the promises, but he will fulfill these promises. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then look at this. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Don't try to decipher the inscrutable plans of God by some other eschatology or hermeneutic where you replace what he says he's going to do with exactly what he says he's going to do. Just be patient and give him time. He will do exactly what he says he's going to do. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The reason I wanted to read to you the covenants and read that, Romans 11, all that, is to say there are many, many things that God has sworn he will do. Not based on anything that Israel or any human being will ever do. Not based on any covenant that he's made with both. It's a unilateral covenant. All those, except for the Mosaic Covenant. He's sworn he would do it. He's given name places. He's named the throne, the place that, that David will sit. It's going to be David's son. There's, a, there's, there's actual river boundaries and everything else. He's got to do what he said he's going to do. And that has not happened. Nothing even remotely close to what we just read in those covenants has ever happened. And it definitely hasn't happened forever, which all of them talk about being forever uh, everlasting, perpetual. There's many terminologies in there that talk about this lasting forever. And those are just the, the, the small snippets that we read. Therefore, I think, I believe, the only time that this could ever happen is during a literal reign of Jesus Christ on this earth as those thing, and those, all of those things will occur literally as he reigns on David's throne in Jerusalem as king and, and, uh, and the priests are ministering in the millennial temple as priests, even though he is the high priest, in the land of Israel, with the nation of Israel, and all the earth will be blessed by both him and the people of Israel for a thousand years as he reigns. 
and then he'll make the new heavens and the new earth. So those covenants are super important. Not only do they help you to, they give you that backbone of scripture as a whole and tell you what's going I mean, they, they give you the story of the Messiah and all that. They help you understand what's going on right now. But they give us really clear understanding of what must occur during the millennial reign of Christ. So I, that's why I thought it'd be important to look at those because, again, Revelation 24 through 6, all it says is the tribulation saints rise and they reign for a thousand years and then Satan is released and, and, uh, and then he's going to have that last rebellion. So next week, I want to look at the... Uh, so these were the six biblical covenants. Next week, I want to look at some of these kingdom promises, things like the millennial temple and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and also, I want to... Um, you know, you can ask questions next week, and many of them I may not know, but I'll study, and then we'll, you know, the very last week, we'll talk about some of the conditions on earth. There's, there's peace between man and animal. People live for a long time during that. I mean, those are, just, those are just exciting things that are partially revealed in Isaiah that we'll talk about. But um, doing the same thing as we did with the covenants all the way through, you can do that with the kingdom all the way through. And it gives you a bunch of really clear descriptions of what must happen during the reign of Christ on earth. So, sorry I didn't take questions today, but we'll, we'll get to them. Uh, but let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed.